The Charles Adler Show starts now. Well, I don't usually start out the podcast this way, but I will start out this way today because I'm crazy about the writing of our guest, who is a writer. Uh, He's an author. Uh, Sports was his life, or at least it was known to be sports for the longest time. Uh, Now he does everything, but sports is still a great passion of his, especially so-called sports uh, personalities. It's it's hard not to want to write about colorful personalities, and so he has. And this piece that Bruce Arthur wrote is about Mike Babcock, who years ago was was thought to be a god, but um, in sports, uh, gods get killed off regularly. It's kind of almost like uh, Roman and, and Greek mythology. So Bruce wrote in the Toronto Star this week, it was seven years and a lifetime ago, that Mike Babcock stood atop the hockey world. He had a cup in Detroit. He won gold with Canada at the Vancouver Olympics, probably the biggest win since 72. And then again in Sochi, that's in Russia, where Canada was so dominant, it was boring. Mike Babcock nabbed the biggest coaching contract in history with the Maple Leafs. He added another gold at the 2016 World Cup of Hockey for good measure. He was at that moment, at that moment, that's seven years ago, the granite visaged face of coaching in the sport. Bruce Arthur, thank you so much for joining us here on the Charles Adler Show. Check it is a pleasure. So before we do anything else, I just want to ask you this. Uh, a lot of people get from sports to, to, to general to do, doing everything, but sports still ends up owning a, a great big piece of real estate in their heart. Is that the story of Bruce Arthur? Yeah, well, I think about it this way, is that before COVID, I was purely a sports writer, pretty much. You probably could count on one hand the number of things I wrote that were not about sports in any way. And then I've kind of thought more about the wider world since. But sports is still, of all the things that bring us together, and there aren't that many things, fewer and fewer, that do bring us together. The idea of the monocultures disappearing, sports is still one that we all gather in a way that very few, very few other things bring us together like that. Um, like when the Toronto Raptors won the NBA title in 2019, uh, the parade was like two and a half million people in the streets of Toronto. Nothing else does that. When Canada won that gold medal in Vancouver uh, in men's hockey, something like half the country watched. Nothing else does that. And so sports is still something that is such a power and is still important to so many people and can still be a way to tell stories. But I'm also really interested in the wider world as well. So when uh, Doug Ford was uh, elected, uh, his progressive conservatives were elected, and Doug Ford became the Premier of Ontario, they, they, they didn't have two and a half million uh, at that parade? <laughs> Doug was actually at the Raptors parade and was booed roundly. Um, right. And Masai Ujiri, he went to shake hands with Masai Ujiri, and Masai brushed right by him. I asked Masai about that later, and he said, I didn't yeah. see him, but he really tried to yeah. use that as, as a snub. No. <laughs> there, there may be a parade if Doug Ford decides to resign. <laughs> but, but there was no parade when Doug Ford was elected. All right, uh, let's, let's, let's go to the Babcock story, because uh, so many of us who uh, weren't necessarily uh, Detroit fans or Maple Leaf fans were certainly Team Canada fans, and so he was the coach of Team Canada. It was hard to imagine in the days when he won. Well, you mentioned both in, in Vancouver and Sochi at the Olympics. He, he won. Uh, it it would have been very difficult for anyone. I, I don't even think Bruce Arthur uh, would have said that someday Mike Babcock would be absolutely disgraced as he has been in the last few days. We'll talk about the disgrace, 
But can you give me a, a sense of what that's like when you're watching someone at the pinnacle? Do you ever imagine that person at the pinnacle? I don't care if it's a Mike Babcock, a, a Wayne Gretzky, whoever. Uh, do you ever imagine that, that that someday he may not just fall from grace, but but plunge? I think if you talk about like the songs of innocence and experience, we have to assume that it's possible, right? You you can never discount that it's possible, um, but you don't necessarily think it's probable, and that's partly why. Partly one of the reasons that this feels like a change in hockey is that there have been coaches like Mike Babcock before. Right, guys who people didn't like, guys who treated players badly, guys who treated people badly—not everyone, but enough people. That has been not only just in hockey, but if you talk about the cult of the coach god, if you talk about how how we venerate the sport and how it protects those who succeed within it. Scotty Bowman was a tyrant, was an awful person to a lot of the players he coached, and he's been softened over time. Um, there have been lots of guys like that through the history of hockey. Like, And Mike Babcock was of a line of those guys. He just had more self-confidence, more unshakable hubris, more, un- more kind of just self-determination. And that's how he becomes the head coach of Canada. And the other coaches on Team Canada, who are all really accomplished coaches in the NHL, come away from the Olympics grumbling that Mike never listened to me once, right? Like, you could imagine that it would happen. If you were going to imagine how it would happen, this is probably how you would imagine it, is that people probably eventually had enough of how he treated them. And again, the, the difference is in hockey, that didn't used to be much of a thing. It took an awful lot for how you treated people to filter down to actually the status of your job if you were a coach. Well, I don't want to get too deep into the weeds here, but, you know, in, in broadcasting, when I got in, you know, whatever it was, 50, 60 years ago, it feels like a, a thousand years ago now, uh, there were lots of tyrants in the business, uh, mm-hmm. lots of tyrant general managers, owners, uh, program directors, news directors, uh, you name it. Uh, there was a, the, the kind of the model was, was, I think Perry White was the, the fictional cartoon character mm-hmm. in Superman and all these, all these guys who were running uh, the radio business and TV, they all wanted to be Perry White. Uh, Ed Asner played a little bit of a, a Perry White in the Mary Tyler Moore show, and he played uh, the role of uh, Lou, who was uh, Mary's coach at the TV station in in a, in a you know fictional Minneapolis setting. But nevertheless, I have a feeling feeling that this might transcend sport. Is it fair to say that when it comes to HR, uh, many of the the tyrants of the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, many of those madmen, and maybe Mike Babcock is one of those mad guys, simply can't function today. Well, and I think part of that is how people are changing too. I have a couple friends who are university professors, and they are they are bomb throwing social democrats. They are as as empathetic <laughs> and 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 kind of thoughtful as you can get. There. But they have said that their students over the last over the last probably 10 years have become more resistant to criticism. They've, and and then that can, that can be a problem. We talk about the the, people talk about the bubble wrapping of kids now, how they're not getting prepared for the real world. And I think there is something to that in that kids aren't prepared for criticism in the way that maybe we were when we were kids or the generation before, before mine or yours or whatever. Um, And so I think that also happens in hockey. So when I, when Babcock was fired by the Leafs in 2019, I went and asked Jake Muzzin, uh, the defenseman for the Leafs, 
about kind of how Babcock coached. And Jake Muzzin was a multiple cup winning defenseman for the Los Angeles Kings under Daryl Sutter, who was one of the biggest hard asses the sport has ever seen, right? And the way Muzzin said is, you know, the kids today, they're soft. And he said, I know what makes me seem like an old guy, but the way hockey players want to be dealt with has changed. It's not about just yelling at them. It's not being a drill sergeant. It's not playing mental cruelty games with them, which is, again, generations of hockey players and broadcasters and name the industry you want that has existed, right? Especially in, in industries where there is a performance aspect and a, an established power structure. And he said that you need to create relationships with these guys. So think about why Mike Babcock was fired in Columbus. What was he ostensibly trying to do in asking players, hey, let me see your phone. What was his explanation was, I want to see pictures of your family, of your wedding, so I can understand who you are, so I can coach you better. Except that it's a clear violation of boundaries. And especially if you know young people today, my kids, my, I have 14-year-old twins. They literally got phones yesterday. They were the last kids in their class to get phones. We as a family decided that we wanted to wait as long as we could before we introduced that, modern, that bit of modernity to their life. They've come out great so far. But I know that right now, we've told them, we, we're going to get your passwords for your social accounts. We're going to be allowed to look through your phone. You have to learn how to use this before you're allowed to you know, drive the car like an adult. Once you're a, a, a young, early 20s hockey player, professional athlete with the lifestyles that they have, or if imagine if one of them is gay, or if one of them parties a lot and has a lot of pictures of that on their phone, the coach asking for that is a violation, but it's an, this is his attempt at creating that relationship. And he just doesn't how know long, how to do it, right? Uh, how long do you think it'll be, Bruce, before the twins get new passwords? Well, I do, someone told me at some point that there's an app that looks like a calculator. And if you put in the right combination, then it turns into like a Snapchat-like <laughs> app. I'm sure this exists, and I'm sure my kids will eventually figure that out. And you know what? Yeah. And that's nice, okay, nice try, right? Papa. Nice try. But that's okay, because <laughs> kids do need to learn that. But like, right. I'm not going to – I don't ask my friends – to yes. see their phone's pictures, oh. right? If they want to show me photos on their phones, they can choose to do that. When I when I saw the story, uh, when I first saw the story, uh, you know, on the weekend, I thought to myself, like, Babcock, like, what what century do you think you're living in? And beyond the today's ethics and today's mores and today's styles and all the rest of it, I just thought legally, I mean, you know, if he had any lawyer in his blood or any <laughs> lawyer on, on 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 his phone on a particular evening when he may have ventilated that he was going to do this surely to god a, a modern day lawyer would have said no no you have no idea uh you know uh, what kind of a world of hurt you'll be in do you think that babcock himself was stunned when he found out how stunningly stupid this decision was to check out the the pictures of of the on, on the phones of his, of his players. Well, what's interesting is he had done this before, right? But again, back then, we didn't know as much about Mike as we do now. Back then, it was before we learned that, like the Mitch Marner episode to me is really an illustrative example, where he asked young Mitch Marner, young star on the team, but a sensitive guy, um, who do you think are the hardest workers and the least hardworking guys on the team? And then Marner tells him, and Babs goes in the locker room and tells everyone what the kid just told him. <laughs> Oh, right. God. Like, just think about how that is a classic. And, and it's a classic power trip. 
But it's because he was Mike freaking Babcock that he could get away with that. <laughs> Again, two gold medals. If Canada needed one coach to coach the game that we care about most, Mike Babcock was that guy. And then he got fired in Toronto. And then he tries the same thing in Columbus. And here's where the story actually gets a little bit different. Where this story comes out is not traditional hockey insiders, right? It's not your Darren Darren Dreger, Elliot Friedman, Pierre Lebrun, Chris Johnson, Bob McKenzie types, right? It is Paul Bissonnette on the Barstool Sports Spitting Chicklets podcast, which has its own problem. Barstool has some real problems in terms of toxic masculinity and and a lot of the ways they do things. Um, I know for a fact that Paul Bissonnette is a guy who actually is really thoughtful in certain ways and and, and really is a listener. And he's, he's a lot more than he looks on the surface. But the fact that the players went to that to that guy and that podcast, that the news broke on that podcast, and that that podcast caused the end of Mike Babcock's career. What Bissonette tweeted right afterwards was really interesting. He said, we're a player's podcast. If you mess with the players, you're blanked, basically, right? Like, we're coming for you. Um, and that in hockey is a sea yeah. change. Because think about how the union has been has uh, the union has basically been a captive creature of the NHL for most of the last fifty years for a lot of it, right? Like you think about how how players have been defended, how players have been treated within the game of hockey from the junior ranks up to the even the the NHL. Um, th- they don't have power like this, except this time they did, and that is really interesting. That looks more like something like I don't know basketball. Yeah, um, but I guess what I'm thinking about uh, as I'm listening to you, not just the conversation, the piece about you and your, your twins, which I really appreciated, was that th- this is this is much more in line with how the world really is. So we used to think, uh, used to, the old days, old days could be five years ago, but uh, you know, I, I certainly think about 20 and 30 years ago, uh, that, that hockey was absolutely separated from the rest of society and that, that hockey had to be separated from the rest of society because hockey was not to me just a, a game, especially growing up in, in Montreal. Hockey was a war. Hockey was military and the military is not like civilian life. And it, it feels to me that I'm getting, and those of us who thought that are getting our, our comeuppance here, or at least we're, we're, we're getting the message that maybe hockey isn't military anymore. Maybe they're just civilians. We sing ourselves a lot of songs about hockey in this country, right? And it's actually interesting. I used to think that our love of hockey was like an apex level of sports fandom. And then I went to the World Cup of football in Qatar. Yeah. And you see how it is. Uh, it's, it's, it's religious fervor above and beyond anything that we manage in hockey. That said, we have told one of the reasons that hockey succeeds in this country is because we have made it not just a proxy for athletic excellence, but for character right? For character and for endurance. Think about how we treated star players for as long as we did, where a star player just had to deal with lesser players trying to drag them down, trying to hack them, trying to slash them, trying to fight them, right? Trying to hurt them. Like that was just how the game was. And if you couldn't handle that, you weren't up to the standards of hockey. We made it a moral test, which is always a very dangerous thing to do with any institution and any game because confusing morality and character with professional sports, it's not always a one-to-one relationship, I think, as we've seen. But part of that was that idea of suffering, that idea of assimilation. Think about how similar hockey players are. 
think about how if you go to a to a game full of 10-year-olds, they dress the same, they talk the same. Not all of them, but a lot of them. There is absolutely a culture to hockey. And this is something we've talked about more and more in this country, is that that insular institution-protecting culture of hockey ha- it causes all kinds of problems, the same way that any insular institutional kind of function does. And so when you talk about how these players reacted to Babcock, again, they're flexing a little bit of their power and they want to be treated better. The idea of wanting to be treated better in your workplace, even in high-pressure, high-stress workplaces, that is something that is coming to sports, whether sports likes it or not. And that's why guys like Babs aren't going to exist in the same way. I think going forward, we're not going to have guys like that because people are changing in terms of how they want to be treated. And we're learning more about how that can be actually beneficial in sports. How like there are lifting up positively in a workplace, even like even with the standards and all that kind of stuff is in general more successful than a fear based psychological warfare based style of management. So, Bruce, do you not think that this is like so many other things uh, in society? Do you not think that this is a pendulum that, yeah, it's uh, swinging this way, but couldn't it swing back to what it was like 20 years ago? It could, but I would say the increasing power of players is something that's probably going in one direction, at least in terms of their own understanding of it. Like, think about a guy like Austin Matthews with the Toronto Maple Leafs. He's, he's re-signed with the Toronto Maple Leafs. He absolutely could have not destroyed, but really damaged the franchise had he decided to walk in free agency. He had power over what the franchise did. Now, that's different than what happened here in Columbus. What happened here in Columbus was not the Captain Boone Jenner saying, Babs is no good, because he defended him publicly. It's not star winger Johnny Gaudreau saying, now Babs has got to go. Nope, that's not what happened. It was the young players saying, I can't play for this guy. And telling management that. I think now that this has happened, hockey will, of course, try to stuff it in a box because it always tries to stuff progress in a box no matter how. I don't think you can. I don't think you can. I think what's going to happen is that coaches are going to have to adjust to players who have been raised differently in less of a hazing heavy environment and in a more, in less of a permissive environment, I would say, too. Um, and who are going to be, I think, just going to be different kids to manage. I think that's where hockey's going to a degree. Now, more with Charles Adler. So, Bruce, what do you say to a fan who says, wait a minute, so some of these kids, and some of them do come across to those of us who are, say, over the age of 40 as as kids because they're in their early 20s. And so these kids in their early 20s are, in some cases, making two, three, four million dollars. And now they're making demands like you can't treat me this way. What do you say to the fan who says, wait a minute, you, you give me $2 million. You can do anything you want with me. You say that and then it happens and then it's different because we get used to circumstances very quickly in this world, right? As soon as you get a raise, all of a sudden you're like, you know, I could get another raise. <laughs> uh, no, I, I understand that. But you have to understand being a professional athlete in a lot of ways is a terrible way to live. Like the demands that are put on you, the the linking, direct linking of your performance, no matter what else is going on in your life, and your future and reputation and power and money, like 
Most of us don't have jobs that are like that, right? Where, where you can fail or succeed in front of millions of people where they scream at you because they lost a bet based on you, a puck jumping over your stick, where there's all these pressures that come with it. Like, again, what makes the sport go? What makes any sport go? It's not the people running it. Like the, the, it's not the marketers. It's not the commissioners. It's not, the, it's not even the general managers. And it's not even the coaches. It is the athletes. And athlete power is something. If you look at how the NBA works, the NBA used to be, again, much more of a top-down league. Right now, the players run the league. And there's all kinds of problems that come with that. But it's because they are the most important part of the game. They determine what will happen to a lot of people's jobs, to franchises, to the happiness or unhappiness of entire cities. And they know that, right? And hockey players over time are starting to pay a little more attention to how basketball players get to live their lives, how much money they make, and how much power they have. That's starting to, again, if you are the show, you do at some point, it's like a rock and roll band. You get to have a rider, right? You get to make certain demands. It's hard to imagine, a, 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 I guess, an NBA version of, of Mike Babcock uh, telling LeBron and, and some of these other uh, superstars, show me your phones. I mean, yeah. I, I, just, I, I think that would have been terminated uh, been terminated with 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 prejudice as they once said in the impossible now. right it would have been I, impossible. I think, they, I think i think they would have murdered the guy I, I mean i just think it would have been bloody had an nba coach said that to the to the nba stars i don't I just don't think it was possible i can't even see it happening in major league baseball okay right i'm not even sure i could see it happening in football um and football is another coach god sport where players yeah. are interchangeable you don't have guaranteed contracts i still have difficulty seeing that happening but hockey is a paternalistic sport. I, I often say, like, if you look at hockey, it's a lot like a small town. There are certain people who are favored. There are certain, like, families which go back deep into the game. And then there are outgroups, right? Like, it is a very small place in a lot of ways. And Babs was a king in that world, an absolute king. He got to tell Sidney Crosby to back check. He got to tell every great player in Canada what to do. He got to determine whether they were on his team to a degree, not entirely, but on his team. And then made more money coaching a team than anyone ever has, right? Like he was empowered and he did not learn his lesson from what happened in Toronto. And that to me is the really interesting part is at some point he should have learned. Speaking of the money, and we'll get back to Babcock specifically, but I'm just wondering, is, is there a power differential greater now than ever? Uh, between a coach and a player because while players have been making more money than coaches for a long time now they're making exponentially more i think to a degree i still think it's not the same as the nba in the nba the money gap is bigger but the power gap comes with that it really is linked in the nhl i will say that star players i think are starting to figure out that they have more agency than they used to eric lindros was an absolute aberration for years the way he tried to control his career right um, and hockey made an example out of him for it. But then you look at a guy like Matthew Kachuk. Look at all the guys who were refusing to sign in Calgary. It's actually a really interesting kind of cultural microcosm in the sport where Matthew Kachuk decided he didn't want to play in Calgary anymore and forced his way to exactly the place he wanted to go in Florida where people don't care that much, but the weather's great, right? Like, But that that was empowerment. 
That was player empowerment and determining where you want to go. More guys are going to start figuring that out because the CBA is not terribly incentivized to signing with your own team. So this is, things are going to change as time goes on. And it's not just the money. It's the impact you can have on a franchise. Like Connor McDavid, if he wanted to, could destroy the Edmonton Oilers. If he wanted to, he just doesn't. Bruce, I just wonder how much of this uh, moves in a direction that is unlike the NBA, unlike the Major League uh, Baseball, unlike unlike sports, and that would be politics. Uh, the leader in a political party is is a young person today expecting something different from the leader of the liberals, the conservatives, the NDP, I don't care which party you're talking about, is a young person today, I'm talking about young, mm-hmm. early 20s, does that person have a much different expectation of a leader today, a political leader, than they would have when we were in our 20s? Has that changed? Uh, in the wider world, you mean? Yeah. I think it has because think about what life was like when you were 20 years old, right? The whole world was in front of you. Like there was there things were hard, but it was possible. You could see a path to owning a house. You could see a path to a future that extended as far as you could see in terms of a stable world whether there were nuclear worries or whatever it was at the time. When I was 20 years old, I could still see a path to owning a house in Vancouver where I grew up. And three years later, that was starting to end, right? Um, But the idea of climate as a crisis, the idea of housing as a crisis, the idea of COVID as like a pandemic as an idea. If you're young today, you can't afford rent it's quite possible you can't afford rent. The idea of a house is almost impossible. The idea of the future of the planet is in question. And you, of course, are demanding something different. And actually, it's really interesting. I'm writing a piece right now about uh, Nate Erskine-Smith, who's running for the Ontario Liberal Leadership. And one of the things that kind of came out of talking to him is he has a grasp of the problems that we face and the ambition required to solve them. And I think that's something in Canada we we don't have and I think kids and everyone should demand because we are a country that is by our nature incremental. We haven't had to do big things over the last 50 years, not really. And we kind of forgot how to do them. And if I'm a young person now, I want ambition in politics. I want, I want ambition of problem solving. I want truth telling in politics. And I want people who are going to try to make my life better because it has to be. Whereas when I was younger, every every young generation wants better, right? But we just weren't facing the scale of problems that kids today are. Like neither your generation, my generation, like it's changed remarkably. And if I'm a young person now, I'm demanding all kinds of things. You know, it's interesting. I was watching a little bit of the Nate Erskine Smith the other day. And I was asking myself, I, I just wonder if this is a sign of the times, because he wasn't just throwing out talking points. Uh, he wasn't just bashing uh, uh, an opponent. Uh, he actually was someone who came across as rather cerebral, mm-hmm. someone who did a lot of thinking about what he was saying, and somebody who was thinking uh, a hell of a lot 
about how to solve the problems that matter to young people, old people, people in the middle, uh, Ontarians, and, and if he were uh, involved, he was involved in national politics, but if he were running for national politics, uh, he, he'd be very much involved, I think, in, in things that matter to, uh, to Canadians in general. Is, is this a sign of the times? Is he a, a canary in the, in the coal mine? Do we actually have something to look forward to here? Uh, leaders down the road that think hard about real solutions, not just bashing the opponent? That sounds great, doesn't it? It sounds fantastic. What a, what a wonderful idea. I don't know that he is a canary in the coal mine because, I mean, I think there have been politicians over the years who have had a real firm grasp of problems, of, of issues, who can understand the nuances and the difficulties and the political considerations and all the sides of an issue and come out with their position on it. I think Nate is one of the best I've seen at it. I think he, in terms of the, like, take a look at his Twitter thread on the trans issue. We have these protests planned across Canada tomorrow, these tiny little convoys which are basically targeting sex education in school, trans kids in the LGBTQ community. Um, and it's ugly stuff. Take a look at Nate Erskine Smith's kind of assessment of that problem and you go, that's really reasonable. And then take a look at his assessment of housing and you go, wow, that's really reasonable. Then take a look at his assessment of animal welfare, his assessment on how you deal with decriminalization of drugs. And he's obviously someone who's thought deeply about a number of issues. I don't know that there's that many politicians out there who do that. Because the system is not incentivized to do that. As you said, talking, who's the leader, who's the front runner in the race in Ontario? It's Bonnie Crombie. You, you, tell me what Bonnie Crombie stands for in terms of policy. She, sta like, she stands for bashing Doug Ford. Yeah. And, and, and maybe opening up the green belt as well, right? Like yeah. just the, well, whatever, whatever the, whatever is not working for Doug Ford. I mean, she, she'd be for. And, and not a, I'm not. I'm not disparaging her. She's. I think. I think Bonnie Crombie is a, a very astute, uh, excellent mm -hmm. uh, retail politician. And my yes. guess is at the moment. Uh, and of course, she comes from the royalty uh, as far as you know. David yep. Crombie, the so-called tiny, tiny, perfect mayor, who was a mayor. You know, in my in my days, a, a long time ago, I remember him very well. Um, he uh, clearly has. You know, there's there's some some David Crombie chromosome in her. I have zero doubt about that. And zero doubt that at the moment she's probably just to be just to be fair here. I think Bonnie Crombie is probably the the front runner for that leadership. Hundred percent. And so the, there's a, an interesting question in that race is at this moment in history when we are facing so many overlapping crises. <laughs> when you talk to people in government and you start to dig in on the problems we face societally, you start to realize just how hideously complex and interlaced they are, from housing to opioids to the trans issue, to the climate issue, to the United States, to Indian or Chinese foreign interference, to, to inflation, to all these things. We are facing basically the results of levels of inaction or bad decisions in Canada made over the last several decades, right? And they're all kind of coming to a head, it feels like at the same time. So what should we demand of our politics right now? We should demand truth telling. We should demand integrity. We should demand an understanding of the problems we face and an ability to analyze and provide a policy government-based solution for that. And I honestly, I think in the Ontario Liberal race, I think that's a really interesting dichotomy between Erskine Smith and Crombie in particular. Um, and I don't know where it goes. I doesn't certainly doesn't look like Erskine Smith is going to win necessarily. It'll be interesting if he does. And Crombie is clearly a front runner. But we should demand more of that in politics. It's just that name recognition and fundraising prowess tends to be where we go, right? 
Well, you know, politics uh, for for so many people over the last uh, few decades has largely been a spectator sport, which they only really mm-hmm. participate in the last ten days, twenty days of a of, a, of an election campaign. Most people don't even pay attention to how they're going to vote, depend regardless of how much information, how much data we get from pollsters. Most people don't take their vote seriously until only days before the actual election. But for the most part, politics has been seen as a sideshow in people's lives. They haven't been looking at politics as really impacting on their everyday lives. Now, you you know, I don't want to rehash all of the issues that you just mentioned because all of them are precisely the reason why politics at the moment is anything but a, a spectator sport. Politics is a reflection of what's not working. And it's, I really do think in this country, like not to discount the sacrifice and hard work and difficulties in this country over the last 40 years, but we have been playing the national game on easy, right? We have been protected militarily and diplomatically and to a great degree economically by the United States. We have had stable population. We have had stability in a hundred different ways. And that's not just something that's an accident. That's something that was intentional. But why do why do we have a housing crisis? Because we haven't built enough houses in the last 20 or 30 years, right? Paul Martin's budget, I think in 96 or 97, that basically cuts funding for public housing is a huge part of that. And then you can go over decisions over the last two decades that we stopped building things. And then why do we have a climate crisis? Because again, on a global scale, we've done exactly that. We've kind of just let things go. Um, why do we have problems with forest management? Because we never really thought too much about forest management in the terms of a climate crisis before. And all of a sudden, we got to change the way we manage forests. All Long-term care, the generational changes, um, the reason that we need immigration because we don't have enough people in the country to fill all the jobs if we don't bring in four or 500,000 people a year, but we never, we never planned for that. All of this is everything that has been easy comparatively in Canada to now, all of a sudden the bill's coming due and then a pandemic hammers at all the cracks and here we are where it feels like all these crises are meshed together and the liberal government's looking at them going, what do we do? And the provinces look at them and go, how can we make this worse? Bruce, by by the way, it's become a a hobby horse of mine. And here I am, a person who's an immigrant who has been pro-immigration all my life and has supported the idea that that we need more people for a whole host of reasons. The housing uh, crisis and the healthcare crisis and the education crisis, all these crises have made me rethink some of my views about just how many people we absolutely need to bring into the country. But one of the things I keep hearing about is how the reason, major reason we need immigration is because so many of these immigrants are involved in the trades and we don't have enough tradespeople. And I'm asking myself, and I'm going to ask you the same question I've asked a number of other thinkers in this country. Is there anything wrong with uh, offering guidance uh, to young people and instead of just doing this propaganda, you must get a university degree, you must get a university degree, changing that to, you know, maybe if you do work well with your hands, Maybe you want to do something with your hands, whether it's carpentry, masonry, plumbing, I, I don't care what. And that gives you, A, an opportunity at a job that is absolutely going to be there for you, number one, and B, an opportunity to at some point become an entrepreneur. Because if you can hire seven or eight or 10 or 20 or 30 other people who can work at their hands, boom, you've got a company. A hundred percent. Like uh, one of this, this idea that we're going to build our way out of the housing crisis is and, and it's it's kind of the only way we can, whether it's market or government housing. The problem you have is not only do you not have enough trades, you don't have enough construction workers. 
The number of Latin American construction workers and foreign-born construction workers in this country right now is really significant um, because we can't find people because the labor market is tight, because demographically a whole bunch of people are retiring and largely because of COVID, but also just because they're in the 60 to 65 range. And so the re when you talk to people who understand the dynamics of the situation, what they will tell you is, so right now we're bringing in about 500,000 people a year. If we drop below about 400,000 people a year, we are setting a time bomb within our economy. That's how it's described, is that we will, we will not have enough people for the jobs that are required. And that's, no, that's, all, that's all kinds of jobs. Once you go into a demographic decline, it causes enormous problems to your country. Take a look at the projections for Japan or China as the most extreme examples, right? Um, so how do you, the problem you have is the federal government's responsible for that. They have to make sure that we have enough people to keep the economy going. But the provinces have outsized responsibility when it comes to healthcare, education, managing municipal infrastructure, and stuff like housing. Like, so without all of Canada coordination, all of a sudden federalism becomes the problem that we have. Because it's not the federal government that builds most of the houses, but the federal government also got out of the housing business. So like, again, this is a wicked problem that requires an ambition that Canada hasn't had to summon for great swaths of its history. So how do you keep enough people coming into the country, but also build enough houses and housing, but also expand your health care to be able to cover all the people that you need to cover, including an aging population? How do you do all that when it is a joint federal, provincial, and municipal problem across all different factors of society. Again, the bill's coming due, and we have big choices to make as to which way we go, but the federal government right now has basically said, if we don't bring enough people into the country, the problems will become bigger, not smaller. Bruce, can we do, uh, can we do this again soon? Absolutely, Chuck. It's absolutely a pleasure. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Bruce Arthur, uh, sports, uh, politics, you name it. Uh, he's a, a thinker and a conversationalist. And that's why we're going to have him back soon. Bruce Arthur writes for the Toronto Star. He is also an established author. So here's what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to tell your friends. I don't care whether you tell them on email, whether you tell them on Gmail, uh, whether you text them, whether you talk to them in person, whether you do the old-fashioned thing of getting on the phone. Tell your friends about the Charles Adler Show. Yes, yours truly is back. Back in the podcast world, Spotify, Apple, Google, it doesn't matter to me which platform you're using, will be there for you. And we've also got several times a week, three minutes that matter. Just look it all up on the Charles Adler podcast. Thank you for joining us in Winnipeg. I'm Charles Adler. Catch Charles Adler Mondays on Real Talk with Ryan Jesperson. Twice a week in the Winnipeg Free Press and every day at criermedia.co.